Before we jump into the message this week, I want to take a minute because um, a lot of different stuff is tying together here in my mind. Let me see if I can tie it together for you as well. Um, last week, we've been talking about hope now for the last couple of weeks, and last week uh, we got into 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, and just sort of focused on that verse for a minute, where it says that we are always to be ready to give an account or a defense or an explanation for the hope that is within us. And remember we talked about how it, our hope in Christ should be so shocking to people that they should see us living in this kind of hope and demand an explanation. They, they should want to know, what is it that, that is so different about you? Why is it that circumstances don't have the power in your life that they seem to have in other people's lives? Why are you steadfast? Why do you seem to be on such a firm foundation when everybody else is on sinking sand, right? They should see that hope in us, and, and they should want to, to know why. But here's the deal. I didn't go any further than that last week to say that once they ask that question, we need to have an answer. We need to be able to explain at some level, especially in our culture today, which is generally skeptical of the claims of Christ, the claims of religion in general, and we need to be able to answer some of those questions that people say, well, wait a minute, here's the thing I've always wondered about. You know, you Christians talk about this loving God and all that, but if God is so loving and he created everything, then why is there so much evil in the world? And we go, I, I don't know. Um, come to church, maybe you'll learn it, right? And, but the truth of the matter is that, that most genuine evangelism happens not because someone came to a meeting where some pastor was preaching. It happens because they met a real Christian who's actually living for Christ who shared with them. And so one of the things we need every one of us to get better at is learning how to start conversations and have conversations with people that will help them to understand this hope that is within us. So um, in that vein, I heard about a conference that's coming up, and I'm getting in on this late because it's only a couple of weeks out, but it's local, and so I wanted to make you guys aware of it. There's a conference called AMP Conference, A-M-P, which stands for Apologetics Missions Partners, and some of the best minds in Christianity are going to be together in Pomona in a couple of weeks talking about this subject of how can we actually, do we have a faith that actually is reasonable and how can we present that to a skeptical world? So I thought some of you might be interested, so I got the promotional video and I'm going to have you guys watch the video for the AMP conference that's coming up. You and I, we both had a day when our minds were opened to the grand narrative, the redemption story God has been telling across millennia. You made a decision to follow him and were adopted as children of the king. And that king has directed us to join him in bringing more into his family, to make disciples. But because of the way conversation tends to flow in our culture today, talking about faith can feel out of place. People can become defensive or ask you questions you've never answered yourself. That's why we've designed AMP, a conference to help amplify the voices of believers. Come and hear from speakers who will equip you to engage the world with wisdom. Grow in your ability to talk about faith by using all of your intellect, character, and experiences. It's time to not merely know that this world points to a creator, but learn how to use that information to spark balanced faith conversations that transform lives.
Okay, so this AMP conference is coming up. It's uh, February 12th and 13th. It's in Pomona, so it's right here locally. It's not very expensive. And on top of that, I have arranged for everybody in our church to get a discount. So if you want to go, you go on the website, which uh, we need to bring up on the screen. Um, you go on the website, which is ampconference.com. Write this down if you're interested. And then there's a place for promotional code. On the promotional code, you're going to put in right on mission. I think it has to be all caps. That's the way it was given to me. Okay. Um, so uh, a dear friend of mine is one of the keynote speakers, and that ministry is called Right on Mission Ministries. And so through their ministry, we're getting this discount. So if you're interested, you want to be a part of it, do me a favor too. Um, let us know if you're planning on going so we can figure out how many are going and who's going and we can connect at the conference. Friday night, all day Saturday, the 12th and the 13th, food is provided. It's a great deal and it will help you um, understand your faith better and be able to share it. So if, if you're interested, there you go, okay? Um, because we really do need to be able to give an account for the hope that is within us. And so we're going to keep talking about that. Um, We've established already in the last couple of weeks that hope is one of the major pillars of the Christian faith. Hope is an essential part of what it is to be a Christian. Paul said it this way, faith, hope, love, these three abide, but the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, love. And, and basically, we talked about this, how, how everybody sort of knows that what, stands, what makes Christianity stand apart from every other worldview, every other philosophy, every other religious system, is that in every other religious system, there is some sort of way that people are trying to work their way to God, that they're trying to impress God, they're, they're trying to do enough good works or something like that, follow the rules correctly so that God won't be quite so mad at them and maybe God will let them into heaven, whatever they view heaven to be. And yet in Christianity, that's not the issue at all. Christianity is not about man working his way to God. Christianity is a story of a God who loves man so much that he worked his way to us, that when we wandered away, he came and got us, right? And so it's not about our ability to climb some spiritual mountain to get to him. It's about his willingness to condescend to get to us. And then he gives us faith to believe, and our salvation, our justification, our sanctification is all completely by faith, not by our own works. Amen? So that's the faith component of these three pillars. And, and, and most people who have been around Christianity at all have been taught that. And then there's, there's a love component to Christianity that, that, again, we're very familiar with. We know that Jesus said that they will know you are his disciples by your love for one another, Right? And, and we know that when you just read the Gospels and the teachings of Jesus alone, if you throw out the rest of the Bible and just looked at the teachings of Jesus alone, you would see again and again and again that he is teaching us to love people and that love is a foundational aspect of Christianity, right? And so we have this um, vision, loving God, loving people, changing the world. It's about love. Most people know that. And yet hope seems to be the Cinderella of these three sisters, not so invited to the ball. It's like you don't hear a lot of talk about the foundational significance of hope. We talk about hope now and then. At Christmas time, we talk about hope a little bit, but there's a foundational reality to the hope of our faith that is absolutely equally foundational to these other three, two pillars that we've been talking about. So we've been trying to dig into this concept of hope a little bit the last couple of weeks. 
And, you know, the truth of the matter is, if you're actually going to enjoy the abundant life that Jesus came to give us, then you're going to have to place your hope in him. There just isn't another way. Our, you know, that's why I wanted us to sing that song this week, that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus. No other foundation, no other frame, nothing else is, uh, is competent to be a foundation for our lives. So we said that when Jesus is our hope, it's not just living with sort of wishful thinking and a positive attitude, it's actually living according to reality. Listen, whatever people may tell you, Jesus is way more than a crutch. Now, I'll be the first to admit, for me, he's a crutch. I lean on him heavily, and I don't think I could stand without him, okay? But Jesus is way more than just a crutch. He is more than just a good idea in philosophy. He's more than just a, um, an interesting story in mythology. Jesus is more than a fairy tale to keep you optimistic when things go difficult in life, which is the way a lot of people view Christianity. Listen, let's be clear about this. Jesus is real. Jesus is reality. Jesus is actually living today. Jesus is actually active today. Jesus is actually holding everything together today. Jesus is actually sovereign in our world today. Jesus is actually our only way and truth and life today. That's real, okay? That's not philosophy. That's not wishful thinking. And so we got into last week that if we're going to be living in actual reality, we got to get our hope grounded in Jesus. Make no mistake, Christian hope is not positive confession. Christian hope is not living in a dream world or just having a positive attitude. It's not a denial of reality. Living in Christian hope is living according to reality, the reality of who Jesus is. So I've been saying that in as many ways as I can the last two or three weeks, and today I want to transition and say all of that is as true as it's ever been, but there's more to be said. There's more than one side to this coin, and, and I want us to be intellectually honest enough in our relationship with the Lord and in our in our dealings with Scripture, I want us to be intellectually honest enough to admit that we can be as hopeful as, as anyone, and we could put our hope in Jesus, and still, as we put our hope in Jesus, there are going to be times when life is so difficult that we don't have the slightest idea what to do. There are going to be times in all of our lives when we struggle to the point that we can't do anything but cry, Right? That's true. And so to say that we have all of this hope in Christ is not to say that Christians are not susceptible to discouragement. We do sometimes get discouraged. One of my favorite movies uh, is a movie called Remember the Titans. Have you seen this movie? You guys know this? Yep. This is Kimmy's favorite movie of all time. So if you ask her, she can quote it to you from beginning to end. It's fascinating. You should do that. In fact, she doesn't want to go see the football game after this, so corner her right after this and talk to her about that. Um, anyway, it's a football movie, and, but it's not really a football movie. It's a movie about people, and it's a true story based on a, a, football, a high school football team, 1971 in Virginia. So it's the South. It's uh, racial... Um, desegregation, it's all of the stuff that's going on and all of the hotbed of that. 
and there's a coach who's trying to bring together a team in a newly um, racially mixed high school and in all of the issues that happen with that. And there's a point in the movie where something tragic happens, something terrible happens, and, and the coach who is played by uh, Denzel Washington is there with his wife, and he's just like despondent, and he's brokenhearted, and he's questioning himself, and he's saying, you know, um, did I push him too hard? Did I cause this to happen? Was there something I should have done differently? And sh- his wife beautifully, lovingly just puts her hand on him and says, honey, listen, um, sometimes life's just hard for no reason at all. And that, that line in that movie has always resonated for me. I think she's on to something. Now, we as Christians know that it's not actually technically true that it's hard for no reason at all. We know that the difficulties of life are ultimately related to sin and that we live in a fallen world. But if you, if you just take it at face value and say, you know what, the truth of the matter is there are many times when we are not going to get the answers to why it's difficult. It just is. And it just is because we're human. And it just is because we live in a fallen world, and it just is. And sometimes life is just incredibly, incredibly hard. In fact, um, let's just see if this bears out. Do me a favor. Raise your hand if you've never been through an incredibly difficult season in life. Never? I think... uh, if you, if you raise your hand, I think you need some serious counseling about honesty, okay? <laughs> because <laughs> the truth of the matter is, we all struggle. And we don't have to spend a lot of time establishing that. We know that's true. And, and the interesting thing is that when we're going through one of those seasons, have you noticed how time just slows down when you're struggling? You know, you notice that two days in the hospital feels like two weeks, Right? Um, I'll never forget this. I was in Uganda several years ago, and um, this is a trip I took with a group of pastors, and we were doing some pastors training, and when we finished, that we actually couldn't get a flight until about two days after the conference, and so we decided that we were going to travel across the country of Uganda from sort of the bottom right to the top left, and we were going to go to a place called Murchison Falls, which is like a national park for them, and something like Yosemite. And the difference is that if you go to Yosemite, you'll see some deer and some bears and maybe a squirrel or two. If you go to Murchison Falls, you will see lions and hippos and elephants and all of that. And you can kind of go on a safari there in Murchison Falls. So we decided to go to Murchison Falls and spend the day. Now, it's not actually that far. If it was here, uh, you could make the drive in about three and a half, four hours. But they don't have the road system that we have. And so it is like a seven to ten hour drive. And so... We rented a, you know, a service that comes and picks you up with a van, and there's five of us guys and the driver in, in what is ultimately something like a Toyota minivan, and we're in this van, and we drive up, and we spend a couple days and see all the animals and take pictures and do all that, and then we're driving back. Now, it's always the end of this trip, you know, that it just, you're worn out and you're tired. We've been sleeping on the ground and all that. And so now we got this like 10-hour drive to go back across the country. It's really, really hot. Um, there's not air conditioning in the van, so you ride with the windows open, and there's dust coming up because they're dirt roads. And, you know, it's, it's not great. Um, it's, it's not terrible, but it's not great. And, and I'm in the middle section there sitting on the seat, and we're driving, and we've been going for a couple hours. And as we're going, I'm just thinking, man, it's getting hot. And I said, gosh, you guys, it's getting hot. And they're like, well, yeah, I guess, you know. 
And another hour goes by, and I am just getting hot. I am starting to really sweat. And I'm like, my body, it's not like I have, I'm thinking maybe I have a fever because these guys are not complaining. But it wasn't, it wasn't my forehead that was getting hot. It was my butt. From my rear end up, up through my back, I'm just going, oh my gosh, there's something. I'm just going to be an infection or something. I am just, I'm burning up. And so um, we go for another hour or so, and now it's getting almost unbearable. And my skin's turning red, my ears are glowing, and my head, you know, my head is <laughs> glowing. And, and uh, somebody's like, are you okay? I'm like, no, listen, because I, I think maybe there's something on the underside of the van that is catching on fire. And I don't want to say that because I'd rather take the chance of bursting into flames than to actually be stopped in the middle of a desert road in Uganda with no vehicle, right? And so I don't say anything to the driver. I'm just sitting there going, I know there's something on fire underneath me. I just hope we make it, right? And, and so we go another hour like this. And finally, I'm like literally thinking I'm, my, my pants might catch on fire if we don't do something. So I just say, guys, we got to stop and pull over. We stop and pull over. There's nothing under the van that looks bad. And so the guys look in the van to see what's going on. And under my seat is a little knob. They have heated seats. <laughs> and somehow somebody kicked the knob on mine and turned it up to high heat, full bore. So it's 100 degrees, and this seat is about 200 degrees. And I'm just sitting in the seat for four hours. And I'm literally going, I think I might die before I get back to the airport. I mean, literally thinking I might die. And I was so glad to find out it wasn't just something in my body that was causing this. And it was just insane. But I'm telling you, that four hours before we discovered that was the longest four hours I've had in a long time. It just drags on when you are suffering and especially when you don't know why. And you don't know when or if it's going to end. And it could be something as small as muscle aches to something as terrible as brain cancer. If you are suffering and you don't know why and you don't know when it's going to end, it is debilitating. It is discouraging. And if hope is so profoundly important in the Christian life, then we're going to have to look discouragement straight in the eye and say, what are we supposed to do when these times of discouragement come? How do we live in hope even when we're actually facing discouragement? Because discouragement can set in, and discouragement is a very dangerous thing. One of my favorite thinkers is a seminary professor by the name of Howard Hendricks, and Dr. Hendricks said it this way. He said, discouragement is the anesthetic the devil uses on a person just before he reaches in and carves out his heart. Think about that for a second. That's graphic, right? It's, it's really spot on. Because here's the thing. Discouragement usually precedes terrible decisions. Discouragement usually precedes a time of giving up. And when discouragement sets in, it's like your heart gets ripped out and you just don't have it in you anymore. And you start making the decisions that a defeated person makes. And, and let me just illustrate this for you. I've been a pastor for decades and a counselor for decades. And never once in that time have I ever had someone come to me and say, Pastor, I am so blessed and encouraged in my marriage that I'm going to get a divorce. 
right? That is not what they say. I never had a college student come to me and say, Pastor, I am just so digging this school thing, I'm going to drop out. That's not what happens. When we are encouraged, when we are hopeful, when we are optimistic, we toe the line. We hang in there. We, we manage to um, get over the bumps in life without too much difficulty. But when we are discouraged, it doesn't take a lot to knock us over. And it is so easy to finally at some point just have that straw that breaks the camel's back in whatever area you're dealing with and just go, I am done with this. I am just done. And it doesn't matter whether it's good. It doesn't matter whether it's right. I don't care what anybody says. I'm just not doing this anymore. People make crazy decisions, radical decisions, in the midst of their discouragement. Now, I'm not sure if I've ever actually mentioned this before, um, but I'm a UCLA fan. I don't know if you guys knew that. And, uh, and the interesting thing about that is that uh, I grew up in a family of USC people. So, okay, that's enough from you. We can have you removed, okay? So... <laughs> <laughs> we throw out the USC riffraff if they make too much noise. Okay, so I grew up in this athletic family. We're all athletes. My dad's a coach, all that kind of stuff, and they're all crazy about USC, and I'm a UCLA fan from birth. I mean, I came out of the womb blue and gold, and so um, I always had to put up with this. You know, back in the day, when I was a kid was when, like, O.J. Simpson was winning his Heisman Trophy and Marcus Allen, all these guys, national championships for USC. That stupid white horse comes running on the field, and I just think, why doesn't someone shoot that horse? And then that, that band plays that stupid song over and over again. I'm just like, oh, it's just killing me, right? And I lived with that and, and just clung to my blue and gold and uh, sort of fought my brothers in this. And... And then maybe 10, 15 years ago, my oldest brother um, got an opportunity with a group of friends, and they said, hey, we want to buy season tickets to UCLA football games and go to UCLA football games together. Do you want to go? And he said, sure. He wanted to be with his friends, and that turned him into a UCLA fan. So he, he came over from the dark side, <laughs> right? And that left just my one brother who... who it, it's pretty much as rabid about USC as I'm about UCLA. And so, like, if you were to go in my closet and look at my sweatshirts, my jackets, they all say UCLA. So if you said, hey, could you wear something that's not, the answer is no, I don't have anything that doesn't say UCLA on it. My brother's closet is like that with that ugly red and gold stuff. He has that stuff, right? And, and so we, it's fun. We fight and we bet on the games and take each other to lunch and all that kind of stuff. And about, I want to say three, four years ago, I pick up the phone on a Saturday afternoon, and my brother's here. I'm, I'm in my office working. My brother calls, and uh, I said, hey, what's going on? He goes, uh, I've decided I'm no longer a USC fan. I'm coming over to UCLA. And I said, you're not welcome to come. <laughs> we don't want you on our side. And he goes, no, I'm serious. I go, no, no, I've seen you guys before. USC was really struggling in football at that time. They had this terrible coach that everybody wanted to get rid of, and they've since gotten rid of. And, and, um, 
And, and he goes, no, I watched the game today and I've had it. I can't stand one more day with this coach. I said, you cannot come over to our side because they're going to get a new coach and you're going to go back over there. He goes, no, I'm serious. I'm really going to be a UCLA fan. And I said, okay, I will make you a deal. I will accept you as a UCLA fan and I will buy you a ticket to the next game. But here's what you will do. You will box up every piece of USC paraphernalia you have. Jackets, hats, shirts, pennants, whatever and you will bring it to my house where we will set fire to it together. <laughs> and while the fire is burning, I will put a video camera on you, and you will put your right hand in the air and your left hand on a Bible, and you will swear that you will never again go back to the dark side. And he said, I will be there tomorrow. And he loaded up all his stuff, put it in a box, showed up with this massive box of USC clothing, and, and he goes, hey, I was thinking... On the way, I came around the corner. The school around the corner is doing a um, Goodwill clothing drive. Rather than burn this stuff, why don't we give to Goodwill? And I thought to my, I had this picture in my mind of like, you know, drug addicts on Skid Row wearing SC stuff. And I said, yes, this is a great idea, right? <laughs> so we, <laughs> we took it and we donated it. And then we came back and we put him on video. I should put the video on the screen. We, I have it on my phone of him swearing that he will never go back to the dark side. And he's been a UCLA fan ever since. And so, yeah, <laughs> yes, let's cheer for that. That's good because the point of this story is that when we reach a certain level of discouragement, we'll be shocked at the things we will give up on. Be shocked at the things we'll do. Now, in this story, it happened to be the greatest decision he ever made after accepting Jesus. But, but it was still this radical departure from what he held dear because he was just fed up. He was just discouraged. And I, and I don't even ask him now, do you ever think about going back? Because SC's getting good again. And uh, he... I don't want to ask him because it could be bad. Um, discouragement is the, is the enemy of hope. It fights against hope. And, and if, if discouragement gets the upper hand, we can make some really terrible decisions. And so um, let's think about this. I want you to think for a second about what it was like, the discouragement level, for the apostles right after Jesus died on the cross. What was that like to watch them take his dead body off the cross, put him in a tomb, seal the tomb, and place a guard around that tomb and realize he is dead, dead, dead? What was that like? Now, let, let's do a little Sunday school quiz here and see how much you guys know your Bible. Which uh, disciple is the one that betrayed Jesus? All of them. All of them. We all know about Judas, right? Judas is the wretched, terrible guy that sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We all know about Judas. Judas is the terrible one, right? But let's think about the most famous and respected of the disciples, a guy named Peter. Did he deny Jesus? Yes. Not once, not twice. Three times before the sun came up, right? And what about the other ones? Did, did they de deny Jesus? Yes, when they came with clubs and torches and swords to arrest Jesus, what did those disciples do? They ran like scared little children, right? Just as Jesus said they would. They all betrayed him. So just put yourself in their shoes for a second. Your Savior, the one you thought was the Messiah, is now dead and you betrayed him. That's where they're at when Jesus is in the tomb. 
And so what's the difference? Let's just narrow it down now. We got Judas here, the, the terrible, despicable one that everybody hates. And we have Peter, the wonderful one that everybody respects, who both are guilty of essentially the same sin against Jesus. But their stories turned out very differently, didn't they? What was the difference? Hope. What happened to Judas was not that his conscience didn't bother him just like it bothered Peter. It did. And when his conscience bothered him, he tried to go back and do something to make it right in his own power. And he went back to the chief priest and he said, I don't want anything to do with this. I've made a decision that was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. Here, you take the money back. And they said, that's your problem. And the money was just left on the floor there at the temple. And Jesus, uh, Judas took off and what happened next? He killed himself. The next thing that happened was suicide. And his story ends tragically. And so many times reading his story, and you can read this in Matthew 27 if you're interested this week, but, but so many times reading his story, I have this big what if question. I think what if Judas had just been restored to Jesus? That's possible, right? Like, I've been restored to Jesus, and the Lord knows I've betrayed him. What if Judas had been restored? What if instead of giving in to discouragement and letting that be the determining factor of the rest of his eternity, what if he had made a decision for hope like Peter did? Because Peter was just as despondent and broken as Judas ever was. But after Jesus rose again and Peter saw him on the seashore and he was out in the boat, what did he do? dove in and swam for the shore. He wasn't even willing to paddle back. He needed to get back to Jesus at whatever cost, as fast as he possibly could, and get restored to his Lord. And he kept his hope in Jesus, and that meant that his life was going to be radically different than the life that Judas actually threw away. Hope makes a huge difference. Discouragement is dangerous stuff. Now, I want us to think about the effect of that kind of discouragement on two other of the disciples. Um, and, and when I say disciple, I don't mean apostle. I'm not talking about a member of the original 12, but, but probably the next inner circle, the ones that, that were also called his disciples, who also left everything to follow him and went everywhere with him, who had put all of their trust in him. There was a number of those people. And um, these two guys are in that sort of ring of relationship to Jesus. And we only know one of their names. They're not famous and well-known, but their story is given to us in Luke 24. And I want us to just take the next few minutes looking at that. So turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. It's the third book of the New Testament. And go to Luke 24, last chapter. And we're going to begin looking at their story in verse 13. Luke 24, 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. So so they've left Jerusalem. That's where all this happened to Jesus. And they're apparently headed home. They're apparently headed back, back to the life that they left, disappointed, discouraged, going back to Emmaus. Verse 15 While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. What they didn't know is that he was now risen. And so they're on their way back, and the risen Jesus shows up and begins walking with them. Hey, you guys mind if I walk with you? And so they say, sure. 
Verse 16, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. There's a ton in that section that we could talk about, but for the sake of time, I want to just get you to zero in on what they said in that last verse I read, which is verse 21. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. A couple things we need to notice about this. First of all, um, if you read it in the Greek, it says, essentially, we were hoping and we are no longer hoping. Okay? It's in the past tense in the Greek, which means there's a, there's a definite time when it stopped being true. We were hoping, but now we're not. We were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel, but now we're not. And I want you to notice that, that their hope has been taken away from them by the circumstances that took place, right? And, and I want you to notice what their hope was in. We were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. Or does it say Jerusalem there? We were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. That's what they were hoping. And I, I mentioned this last week, but I want to get on this again for just a second. Where we get in trouble sometimes as Christians is that we are hoping in what we think Jesus will do or hoping in what we think God should do, but not hoping in Jesus himself. And when we transfer our hope to the idea that we have about what should happen, that's how you end up like Judas. Judas betrayed him probably because he was so discouraged at the fact that he thought Jesus was going to be this great redeemer who is going to overthrow Rome and deliver Israel. And when it was obvious that he wasn't, he said he'd had enough of that. He had a hope in what he thought Jesus would do. And when it didn't turn out that way, he had no hope. My hope must be built on nothing less than Jesus. Nothing less. And when I put my hope in something, something that is connected to Jesus but is not Jesus, then I'm on sinking sand. That's the situation that these guys found themselves in. We were hoping, but now our hope is gone. And what do you do when your hope is gone? You hang your head, you turn around from the direction you were going that was right, and you just begin to slowly walk back to where you came from. That's exactly what these guys are doing. It's an astonishing Lack of hope, the presence of discouragement in these guys' lives. And it's amazing how discouragement and despair can affect us because there they are walking with the same Jesus they've been walking with for three years and they don't even recognize him. And, and I, I don't quite understand, I don't know exactly how this works. The scripture doesn't tell us how it happened exactly that they didn't recognize him, just that their eyes were prevented from recognizing uh, him. But that gives us enough information to know that the problem in the recognizing was not with him, it was with them. Because everyone else recognized him, right? But 
but somehow their eyes were either literally or figuratively prevented from recognizing him. That in their despair and in their discouragement, they couldn't even see the risen Lord with them. They, they weren't prepared to accept it because their hope had already been taken away because their hope was in something less than Jesus alone. And it's amazing how discouragement and despair can get our eyes off Jesus. In fact, when they heard good news about Jesus, they weren't even prepared to receive it. Look at verse 22. But also, they continue, some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did, did not see. So they had already been given testimony from people they trusted and knew well who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection saying, he is alive. Jesus had told them that he was going to raise again. And now the other disciples and the women are saying, yes, he is risen. And still these guys in their discouragement are so broken because their hope was in something less than Jesus that they are still wandering slowly back to their homes. And they don't even accept the good news when they hear it. Again, where had they placed their hope? Not in Jesus, in what they thought Jesus should do. They'd heard about the empty tomb, and still they're literally walking away from Jesus. So there they are walking away from Jesus, these ones whom Jesus loves. And so what does Jesus do? He does what he always does. He goes after him. Aren't you glad he goes after him? I, how many times in my life have I found myself when one way or another walking away from Jesus and instead of him just throwing his hands in the air and saying, I am so sick of Doug. I am so done with him continuing to stumble and fall and turn away from me, make promises that he doesn't keep. I am so sick. Let him go. That's what I would do. That's not what Jesus does. How many times has Jesus chased me down, grabbed me out of a pit and picked me back up and restored me to him and brought back my hope? So many times I can't count. That's who Jesus is. No matter how dark your circumstances may get, he will never forsake you. Did you hear that? No matter how dark your circumstances, he's never going to forsake you. He is never going to take his eyes off you. He's never going to remove his love for you. He's never going to pull back his grace from you. He is never going to put you back under the judgment that he took you out from under. If you are a child of God, he will go to whatever links necessary to get your attention and say, hey, it's me. Turn and look at me. And I'll just say, sometimes those links are painful. He may have to go to great lengths to get your attention back. But as I said last week, when you're laying flat on your back, it's easy to look up. Sometimes that's what it takes. So they have this conversation. These guys so distraught, so confused, so discouraged because they had put their hope in what they thought Jesus would do. See, they weren't far off. They said, we had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. That is to say, we were hoping that he was the Messiah, that he would redeem Israel. What they didn't understand was that his plan was bigger than that. He didn't come to redeem Israel. He came to redeem mankind. And they, their, their vision was too small. That's why they missed it. And they, they had hoped that he was going to overthrow Rome. 
But Jesus didn't come to overthrow Rome. He came to overthrow sin and death. His plan was much bigger, and their vision was too small. Man, that happens to me a lot. God's vision is so big, and sometimes I can't even grasp it, and I don't know what's going on, and I get confused. They were lost in their own confusion, and he went after them. And then it says in verses 25 to 27 that he begins to explain using the scriptures, going all the way back to Genesis and revealing to himself, uh, revealing to them who he is. What's he doing? He's basically saying, hey, guys, look at me. Get your eyes off your circumstances and look back at me. And, and they, he finally had dinner with them. And when he broke the bread and blessed it, they woke up and they recognized him for who he was. And you know what he did then? He vanished. Look at verse 31. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And so what did they do? They go back to their old ways, say, well, um, forget this. Now, if you read the rest of the verses, you will see that what they did was that very hour, they jumped up, and they hightailed it back to Jerusalem, and they started looking for the rest of the believers. Now, let me just, I, let me just make a quick side note here. When you get really discouraged, you tell me if this is not true, Christians. When you get really discouraged, doesn't the enemy try to prevent you from getting together with the people of God? So often what you need is the encouragement of your brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet you're so down in the dumps, and you just don't feel like it, and you're just not up for it, and anything else sounds more intriguing, and so I'm going to blow off Bible study this week. I'm not going to meet with my friend to talk about our prayer life. I'm not going to be in worship service on Sunday because I just can't deal with it right now, and the enemy just sits there laughing because he's got you in discouragement. So what did they do? They ran back and looked for the other believers. And the other thing it says, they told everybody they could that they had seen Jesus. See, Jesus is the anecdote, the antidote for discouragement. Our hope must be grounded in nothing less than Jesus. You know, the, the people of Israel spent 92 years with the walls of Jerusalem down and the people having no nation of their own. And then God raised up a man called Nehemiah, and Nehemiah went back, and 52 days later, one man who had his hope in God, 52 days later, the walls were rebuilt, the city was restored, and Jerusalem was back. How many months did the armies of Israel stand quaking in their boots while every day Goliath came out and made his little stupid speech and they all shivered in fear until one little guy named David shows up and goes, this is stupid. My hope is in God. Boom, you're done. And the, and the faith of Israel was restored. Here's the point I'm trying to make and I'll close. Listen, God changes the world by people who have their hope in Christ. He did it with Paul. He did it with Peter. He did it with these disciples on their road to Emmaus. He did it with Nehemiah. He did it with David. He did it with Moses. He did it with Joshua. Do I need to go on? I will go on. He wants to do it with you. And if you could get rooted in that kind of hope, then it is no longer a slogan or an idea that we're going to love God, love people, and change the world because when we do, the world is never going to have seen anything like it. And they will want an explanation for the hope that is within you.